Please be seated. Good evening to you. <laughs> I didn't know if I had zombies in the room or something. Looked like people. I didn't know what. Psalm 81 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave to them. They'll get one into your hands, and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Psalm 81 is, at least to me, um, kind of a, a melancholy uh, song. Not all songs are, you know, upbeat kind of songs in life and those kind of things. There's others that are, have kind of a sadness to them, but they also um, teach a deep, uh, a deep kind of lesson. Of course, if you're kind of a melancholy to begin with, then you like that kind of stuff because you like those kind of lessons. Graham Scroggy has written, how's that for a name? Uh, written a book on the Psalms. It's one of the greatest devotional books on the Psalms that you can ever read. It's a great book to have as a part of your library if you love the Psalms and are a student of the Psalms. And he entitled Psalm 81, What Might Have Been. And that is a very, very good title for the Psalm because the Psalm contains at the very last verse of the Psalm what I think are some of the saddest words that God is ever forced to speak to his children, and it is the words, I would have. There's a lot of regret behind a statement like that, and not only for the person who hears that statement, but also for the God who is forced to speak that to one of his children. I think that sometimes we know, well, it's we, we know because we're in the Bible a lot and we understand things. Not everybody knows that Christianity is a personal relationship with God. That's what it is. And sometimes, though, because of the self-centeredness of our culture, we can almost exclusively think of the relationship uh, as it benefits us or solely as it relates to us. We know God is engaged in the relationship. We're beneficiaries of that. But sometimes we don't appreciate how heart-engaged He is in this relationship with us. And so we think that whenever... Um, there is some kind of a loss in our lives in the relationship because of some sin or because of some idolatry, that we are the sole casualty of our sin, that it doesn't do any harm to the heart of God. But that isn't true. God is involved in this relationship. He wants to bless us as fully as He desires to bless us. And as we're going to see in the psalm, the thing that kept God from being able to bless uh, these folks, as he brings out in this psalm, was their idolatry and their failure to obey him. And none of us ever wants to ever stand before the Lord and ever hear him speak those words to us. And I don't say it to condemn, but, but to sharpen us, to ever hear the Lord say, 
I would have, and then have something to say after that, something that he would have done but was unable to do it because of protracted idolatry or disobedience in our lives. And that's a reality about the Christian life. It is a sobering reality that is one of the many things that God uses to keep me in line in my Christian walk with the Lord and in my service to the Lord. Because I'm just like anybody else. I can get sloppy in my relationship with the Lord. I can get sloppy in my obedience to the Lord. And then maybe the Lord would continue for your benefit or somebody else's benefit, still keep some kind of a blessing or an anointing upon the Word or on the ministry that He's performing through me or something like that. And, and we'll, we can squeak by or we can eke by on things. And yet, that ministry can be very far from what God intended to do. And sometimes I just speak to the Lord and I say, Lord, I don't, I don't want there to be some great gap at the end of my life that I look back on and realize you would have done twice as much, three times as much, four times as much if I had just given you my whole heart and all of my obedience in this Christian walk and in this Christian life. And so that I don't end up with a life of regret. And I don't think we carry those regrets into heaven for eternity, but I don't want to face that at all. Again, as we talked a little bit about the heart of a father this morning, one of the things, uh, the heart of a parent, again, we speak of a father because of we, the illustration related to our heavenly father. But one of the great desires of a good father is a desire to bless his children. And when disobedience or some kind of protracted uh, sin or wrongdoing in the life of his child causes him to have to pull back on his blessings, he can't lavish them upon the child as much as lavish can look like for him because they'll misunderstand it as being condoning of sin or, uh, or it'll give them enough resources to actually kill themselves in the sin that they're engaging in. Or if I bless them, God blesses us or a parent blesses a child, they can take and know that if I give them further resources, they'll just squander it in going even deeper into the exploration of their sin. And so, a father is forced to hold back those blessings, and it breaks the heart of a father to know what he would have done, what he could have done, what he wanted to do and was not able to do. And the same thing is true related to our Heavenly Father. And this psalm uh, has a bit of that kind of uh, regret and, and sadness uh, where uh, somebody looks back then upon their life and they realize, wonder what might have been if I hadn't engaged in so long a time in this folly and uh, now the opportunity has been lost. He said, sing aloud to God our strength. Well, we've done that with the thanks of a PA system too, but we've done it ourselves, haven't we? Sing aloud to God our strength, and He is our strength. Make a joyful shout 
to the God of Jacob. So this loud singing to the Lord, shouting to the Lord, we realize that none of us in this room are in any danger of overexpressing our love for the Lord. And as the psalmist uh, speaks here to the, uh, the children of, the, uh, of, the, of Israel and kind of calls them to this really unrestrained, uh, loud, joyful worship of the Lord. And he begins with our voices there in verse 1. Verse 2, he moves on to the instruments, raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp, with the lute. And so the loud voices being lifted up to the Lord, uh, the instruments coming in, and uh, all of the worship of the Lord being directed to the Lord as prescribed by the law of Moses. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, at our solemn feast day, for this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. God called, you look to the Old Testament, to the law of Moses, the call to just worship the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength without any reservation. It really characterized uh, the, the Old Testament uh, relationship with God. And this, is, this he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt where I heard a language I did not understand. And then the Lord begins in verse 6, the message, uh, Lord's message to the children of Israel through the psalmist, and he kind of reviews his past kindnesses uh, to them when they were humble and uh, when they were powerless. I removed his shoulder from the burden, delivered him from the bondage of Egypt. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called and troubled, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder, and I tested you by the waters of Meribah. After delivering them from the, the bondage of Egypt, then out into that wilderness place, they ran out of water. They began to murmur against Moses, and God brought water out of the rock, and all of that was a test of their faith. They didn't do very well, but God's grace was a greater still. And then in verse 8, he comes to, God comes to his admonition uh, or his challenge to his people. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. And so he rebukes their idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of any created thing. So we say, well, we're sophisticated Americans in the year 2012 and 2013 is right, ar right around the corner. Maybe. I'm open to the rapture any old time. Be a great way to just, like, right in the middle of the service tonight, I'm wide open to it. So, here they are, and the, we think to ourselves, oh, those ancient people with their silly idols that they put up and these physical representations of their false gods. But, but idolatry is the worship of any created thing. And there is only one who is not created, and that is God. So idolatry is the worship of anything other than the true and the living God, the God of the Bible. And that can be a worship of relationship, 
Another human being can be the worship of fame, it can be the worship of power, the worship of money, the worship of material things. It can be a lot of different things. The worship of self, which is just epidemic, pandemic. <laughs> the worship of self, the created thing. And so it is the worship of anything other than God, something else that has captured our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength away from him, and they had engaged in idolatry. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who else did that for you? You know, so the blessings that God had brought into their life. And then he said, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now, that's quite a promise right there. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's his heart. That's the heart of the Father toward every one of his children. Now, when we first started the church about a hundred years ago, I remember one of the early kind of meetings that we had, and it was in our house, and it was kind of a younger group of people. Everyone was younger in those days. I mean, it was just young. Everybody was like 20 years old in the whole church, all four of us. <laughs> but we had some kind of an event that was in our house, and, and the whole thing was to build a Sunday in a person's mouth, ice cream Sunday. So we got several people to… Dan, do you remember that? No, you don't? They built a Sunday in your mouth, in case you forgot, <laughs> best of my recollection. But several people laid down on the floor and they opened up their mouth as big as they could open up their mouth and they just proceeded to build an ice cream sundae that just flowed all over their face and onto the floor. And it's funny what comes into your mind when you read the Scripture. <laughs> but that's what I always think about when I read this verse. I mean, that was all the Sunday you could ever want. And that, that's the picture of God. This is what He wanted to do for them. And then it's just a terrible place to, to force God to not be able to end verse 10 where it is, but then he's forced to use that terrible word in verse 11, the word but. But my people would not heed my voice. They wouldn't listen to me. They didn't value my word. And Israel would have none of me. They wanted nothing to do with him. And so, as always a result to that, I gave them over to their own stubborn heart, to walk in their own counsels. You don't like my word. You don't like my commandments. You don't like my wisdom. You like yours better. So go try that for a while and see uh, how it works out for you. And we come back to the Lord, <laughs> you know, all wounded and bandaged up. But sometimes that's how we come to appreciate the hard way for some of us, the, the blessing of being able to walk in His counsel. And then the Lord kind of laments, oh, that my people would listen to me. I hope we listen to God. I like Jesus when he writes to the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit speaks to the church. We've got a speaking God, and so we need to be a hearing people. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would not only listen but then walk or obey, <clears throat> excuse me, in my ways, and then this is what he would have done. I would soon subdue their enemies. And the world's always been a very dangerous place for the Jews. 
but it's not just speaking of the Jews, but God's people in any age. And the place of protection is listening to God's Word and obeying His Word. I would soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to Him, but their fate would endure forever. He says, further, I would have fed them also with the finest of wheat. God said, there's just, there were blessings bound up in obedience to my word that their disobedience uh, caused them to never be able to experience and, and that they forfeited. And with honey from the rock, that's what he wanted to bless them with. That's kind of the Old Testament way of saying a two-pound box of seized candy. Honey was the sweet stuff. I mean, pretty precious thing. And so, it, it just speaks of a super abundant blessing God wanted to give them. And with honey from the rock, and there's that phrase, I would have satisfied you. And so, a beautiful psalm, a sad psalm really, but it does its needed work uh, in our lives and uh, says an important thing to us in our relationship with the Lord. In Psalm 82, uh, the Lord speaks of, uh, this speaks to God's future judgment uh, of unjust judges in the world. Here comes the judge, and it's not a Supreme Court judge. The Lord is coming, and He's going to judge the world, but He has a special judgment that He's going to mete out uh, upon unjust Judges, And so the psalmist declares, God stands in the congregation of the mighty, and He judges among the gods. And so you see that lowercase g for gods, and gods multiplied. And uh, so you look at that, and you think, what in the world? Are there more gods than just the true and the living God? Sometimes the, the Mormons will use a passage like this and, and a couple other places in the Old Testament where it speaks of God's lowercase g, plural, to uh, justify uh, their belief that all of them are one day going to be gods. Every Mormon will one day uh, be a god. Well, that's not what God is saying in the Old Testament at all related to this. And in the use of the lowercase gods in verse 1, that is used occasionally in the Old Testament to refer to uh, Old Testament judges that God raised up from among the children of Israel so that people could bring their difficulties or controversies or problems to them, and then they would then um, listen to the case and they would judge it on the basis of the Word of God. And because they would judge the case on the basis of God's Word, they were a God, so to speak, as a result of that. God was judging in that case as they were faithful to the Word, uh, uh, to His Word and how it applied. And so God used that Word uh, to apply uh, to, uh, to them and their faithfulness in that calling. And so God speaks to them of the fact when He says that God stands in the congregation of the mighty, He judges among the gods. God is saying, I'm in every courtroom. When you judge, He's speaking to the judges. When you judge and you meet out my word and you uh, tell people what they ought to do or ought not to do in a given situation, He says, I'm present and I'm listening. Uh, to that, and, uh, and, and pretty awesome uh, to realize that he's witnessing everything in the world and, 
and how fairly people are receiving uh, justice in this world. How long will you judge unjustly to show partiality to the wicked? So here are these Jews, the children of Israel, and these people that have been given a very high position to be judges among God's people, and they are, instead of rightly judging these cases on the basis of God's Word, they are um, being partial toward the wicked, and presumably for gain. I mean, why else would you do it? For either favor or influence, or maybe they're being bribed or whatever it is. And so, they, they are uh, abusing God's, uh, their position, abusing God's Word, and they're judging unjustly by showing partiality uh, to the wicked. Instead of doing what they ought to have done, which he tells us in verse 3, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. And so, judgment, according to God, is always to be impartial. It is always to be blind. You take the poorest person in the whole wide world, and you bring the, mo the wealthiest and most powerful person in the whole wide world, you put them right in front of you in a case and they lay out the facts of that case, and not only the judges of the Old Testament, but the Bible teaches us as Christians that we're not to be respecter of persons at all. What does the Bible say about this situation, about that person? doesn't matter what they look like or, or what they have or they don't have in life. What does God's Word say about that? And that justice and that was supposed to be absolutely blind and impartial. And they had failed to do that, and, and they were here showing partiality to the wicked, to the neglect of the poor and of the needy and of the powerless. And God took note of that, and He really, really didn't like it. They who do not know, they do not know, nor do they understand, they walk in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are unstable. And the idea is this, is that once the judges of a nation are corrupt, you're through. You're through. Once the judicial system of a nation takes and rewards wickedness and unrighteousness, and righteousness cannot get a fair shake then that nation is going to be one that reinforces and elevates even greater wickedness, even greater corruption into its midst until you end up with a whole spiral of things and, and you end up in a nation that nobody wants to, uh, to live in. That's why I was very, very serious when… And this is not Republican or Democrat, so don't be dumb. But this is why it was such a big deal two or three presidents ago when the President of the United States lied under oath. The highest law enforcement officer in the entire United States, and he lied under oath and got away with it, was not impeached as a result. And I thought to myself, that is a blow against the foundation of this nation. 
even if people don't want to face it or they don't want to realize it because he got away with lying in the position that he was in. And, and so that's what happens. You, this kind of thing takes over the judicial system of a nation and, and becomes corrupt. There's all kinds of nations in the world where you can go to. You say, you never want to go into a courtroom there. Pay the cop at the side of the road. I mean, there's a lot of the world that's in that place. And you'll, I don't know why you're there. <laughs> Probably not vacationing because of the corruption of the place. But this is, it, it, it turns the nation into something it needn't become. And then the Lord said, I said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men, he says to the judges. He's, gonna, he's putting fear in them. You shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So every judge, every one of us, because we're all fallen, and there is something about power, there's something about position, there's something intoxicating about it, but no matter what our position, all of us need to know and to be accountable to someone or something higher than ourselves. And for these judges, and really any judge, that is God himself. And God, in order to get these judges to turn back to the right way, he just simply tells them two things. Number one, you're going to stand before me one day, and I am going to judge you. And, that, and that's what he, he speaks to them, that, that you, you are going to die, number one, and number two, when you die, I will judge you for the kind of judge that you are. And in, in, in a desire to put the fear of God in them, and, and to the degree that a nation loses and its judicial system loses the fear of God is the degree in which that judicial system begins to get shaky as well. And, of course, this is our portion at the moment in the United States of America. So we come then now to Psalm uh, 83. And Psalm 83, uh, we could just hand out newspapers tonight or we could, uh, you know, Google and bring up some news station or something on the computer or whatever, and this thing, Psalm 83, reads as, <laughs> as contemporary today as it was 3,000 years ago. And the psalm speaks to when God's people are surrounded by enemies. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O, o God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult. So here is Asaph. He's writing the psalm. The children of Israel are surrounded by enemies. These enemies, we're going to see in a moment, are forming a ten-country confederation seeking the destruction of the Jewish people and an end to the nation of Israel and of course, Asaph, as anyone would be in his position, even today as a Jew, even today as a Christian in America, a concern for the nation of Israel. And so he basically begins to pray to the Lord and, and says, you know, kind of in his own way, he knows the Lord is aware of everything, but he wants to make sure that the Lord is aware of everything. Do you see what they're doing? This isn't just the Edomites on their own or the Philistines on their own or Assyria on their own. These are 
10 of the greatest and most powerful enemies that we have that surround us in the Middle East 3,000 years ago, and they are seeking our complete destruction. And so, Lord, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. Do something, for behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. That's That's so weird. You ever look at the persecution against the Jews? It's a, it's, it is not natural. It is not natural. The degree to which the Jews have been persecuted through the years, unparalleled for any people or any nation in human history. It's supernatural. The devil desires the destruction of the Jewish people. Now, Everybody goes to heaven the same way, through faith in Christ. But the church has not replaced the Jews and God's plan for the Jews in terms of the Scriptures. God has a future plan for the Jews. And so the devil wants to destroy the Jews and certainly have enough enemies around him that he can manipulate and use. And you just look and say, people are just crazy how they want to destroy the Jews. And there's got to be something demonic behind it. And of course there is. And why uh, is there that, uh, as the psalmist brings out for his day, why is there that opposition? And those who hate you have lifted up their head. These countries were confederating to destroy the Jews because of their hatred for the God that the Jews were associated with, the God of the Bible. And that's the way that it is for Christians, too. Our names, our lives are associated with him. And so the people that hate him, and if you don't know that there are people who hate him, you're going to find out, because I don't know what cubbyhole you're living in. These people are militant, and they are serious. And they can't get to God. They can't get to the Father. So what's the next best place for them to try and hurt him and hurt his heart? By going after his children. And so because our names, our lives are identified with him, we become a target of their wrath and of their hatred. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. And so they've come up These nations have come up with a plan that they think is absolutely flawless. This is going to work, and and, uh, it's a can't-lose plan for the destruction of the Jews. And they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation and that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it is one of the great objects of... um, a great portion of the Muslim world, the attitude toward the Jews. He said, for they have consulted together with one consent to form a confederacy against you. So the psalmist says, Lord, they're coming to fight against us, but don't forget they're up against you. And anyone who wants to fight, if I am not a betting man. I was raised by two gamblers. <laughs> So I saw our food money 
gone way before the next payday over and over and over and over again. So I don't, I don't like the game, and plus, I'm a Scot. And unless you can tell me how I can break the bank, then I'm not going to throw even a dollar away. If I want to throw money away, I'll go to a gas station. But anyway, listen, I'm not bitter about it at all. Seventy bucks a pop. What a racket. But I line up like all of you too. We're all saps. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Sorry to bring that up and to demoralize you. Where in the world was I? To form a confederacy against you. So they're up against the Lord. And I, if there was a thing in Vegas, this hypothetical, where they, you, could, you could bet money on whether the entire world is going to be successful in their attempt to destroy the Jews or not, I'd take everything I own and I'd put it on the Jews. <laughs> and sleep like a baby every night, up every two hours crying. <laughs> no, I'd sleep very, very peaceably on that. So you look at the history, modern history, 1948, an attempt to destroy the Jews as the nation was being formed, unsuccessful. And if you've read anything about that birth of that nation, you realize that wasn't just the strength of the Jews. That was a miracle. 1967, 1973, right on into today and tonight, where the enemies of Israel, mostly under the banner of Islam, desiring to destroy Israel, the loudest voice for that, uh, for Islam on that is coming out of Iran. Don't ever think that any government represents all of its people, by the way, <laughs> that that represents the thought of every Iranian. But that's the position of the government, and the government has tremendous resources. And they'll never be successful because God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And God has been unfailingly faithful to that promise through history, and He will be all the way through the Great Tribulation and into the uh, Kingdom Age. And so, they form this confederacy against you, and then He lists their identities of these nations, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, uh, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria has also joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot. And so these all represent nations immediately surrounding Israel in that day. Assyria represents the greater Middle East. And God, and the psalmist said, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, and they who said, 
let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. And he gives all of these people our examples out of the book of Judges that God judged when they attempted to destroy uh, God's people. Oh, my God, make them like. And so he, he calls on the Lord uh, even further, just pleading with the Lord to judge them and as the most high over all of the earth and really to utterly destroy them. In other words, that they, God, what they intend for us He's, he's praying to the Lord that the Lord would do to them. Oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust, or as one translation says, like a, a tumbleweed in a windstorm. You ever see tumbleweeds? Whew, just blow them away, Lord. Or like the chaff before the wind. Again, blow them away, Lord. As the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. Lord, may your judgment be like a fire burning through a forest, and they are running for their lives before those flames. It's very uh, picturesque language, very, very powerful. And so pursue them with your tempest, frighten them with your storm. In other words, overwhelm them like a great destructive uh, storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may uh, seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and to perish, and for this purpose, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, uh, are the Most High over all of the earth. And so that was the desire. Judge them, humble them, break them so that they will know that you are our God and you are Most High over all of the earth. Now, so some people, you know, the, the Bible says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And some people respond. They come to know God because of His goodness. It's like he, he bails us out of one situation after another, after another, after another, after another, and we come to realize that it's Him, and we say, God, all right, you are so good. You are too much. Uncle, I'm yours. I give my life to you. And then there's another group of people that they come to respect the Lord because of His strength, because of His judgment, His chastening. Some parts of the world, it's, I mean, they only understand kind of the iron fist side of things, but under the velvet glove. And so the idea here is, is that, Lord, yes, we want to be saved, we want to be protected, but we want even our enemies to know in all of it that You are the Most High over all of the earth. We come to Psalm uh, 80. Uh, 84, and Psalm 84 is the psalm or the song of a pilgrim, and it's a, one of the favorites of of God's people. Have a way; it'll have a way of becoming one of your favorites too, if you're new to the book of of Psalms. The law of Moses required that uh, every male, every Jewish male, uh, in the world that they would return to, and certainly within the boundaries of the land of Israel, that they would return, uh, that they would come uh, to worship the Lord at, at the three great Jewish feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, which is the Feast of uh, Pentecost, uh, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles. I ought to get them in the right order, right? The Feast of Passover in late spring, 
the uh, feast or, or in spring, the feast of Pentecost in late spring, early summer, so to speak, the feast of tabernacles occurring in the fall. And so these men would come from all over the world, certainly from all over the nation of Israel, three times a year to Jerusalem at this time in order to worship the Lord at, at the temple, Solomon's temple there. And the psalmist here is uh, thinking about the journey that he's going to be making very soon, whichever one of the feasts is approaching. I assume that it's the Feast of Tabernacles because he talks about a water issue here that he probably would have run into in uh, September, October, where that feast lies and difficulty finding water in some parts of Israel as you're making uh, that journey when it covers uh, several days. And so he's, he is expressing his joy, his anticipation at being able to come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, and to worship the Lord. He says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And so he, he hasn't, you know, ha one of the great blessings of any kind of uh, great event in life is the anticipation, isn't it? And so he's anticipating, he hasn't begun his journey yet, but he's thinking about it. I am going to Jerusalem, I'm going to worship the Lord there, and, and so he's just thinking about it in his mind, how lovely all of it is, what a blessing all of it is, and then he begins to express his longing for it. My soul longs, that's a strong word, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And so here he is, he's, he's using the strength of this language and just talking about how he longs to come to Jerusalem and the temple. The temple represented the presence of God in that covenant. It was as close as you could get to God in the course of the year were these three times that they would come to the temple. I am going to worship God, and, and he's overwhelmed heart, mind, soul, and strength at the very thought of it. And he says, my heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. So this tells me he knows, he's, he knows God's a living God. And so this is a man who has a relationship uh, with God and, and knows that God is alive. And he says, even the sparrow has found a home, speaking of the temple, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. I don't know how many of you uh, uh, have been to Israel or you go to Israel, and sometimes you go anywhere, but we'll talk about Israel. You go to Israel, and sometimes, you know, you're looking at all of these just amazing things that are biblically all around you, and it's really something. And then, you know, your eye looks someplace, and then you just see, you see a bird. And uh, the bird is building a nest, and it begins to just have an impact upon you. Sometimes you can go to Israel and go on a tour of Israel, and you can think, man, I'd love to live here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere outside of God's will. But the only other place I'd want to live in the whole wide world other than the United States of America would be in Israel. I'd love to do Christian tours in Israel. <laughs> Nobody would come, but I would love to do it <laughs> for Christian groups. But you can go through the area, maybe it'd be the Garden of Gethsemane or some of these different places where 
we know this is the site where the Lord actually did this certain thing, and He's the same today, yesterday, and forever, and it reminds us of the greatness of something about Him. And you look at a bird that's nesting there, and you can have kind of a sanctified envy related to it. You get to stay here all the time. This is your home. I'm going to get on a plane and go back <laughs> to someplace wonderful. And so he looks and he, he looks at the, the birds there as he's worshiping the Lord at the temple and he thinks and he envies them, you get to live here. You get to raise your young here. And he longs for that. I mean, you read this psalm and you realize the kind of relationship that this guy has with the Lord. And what he really values in life and really considers to be valuable. And not only does he look at the birds with kind of a sanctified envy, but he says in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. So he goes to the temple, and as he's at the temple, he sees all of the priests doing all of their activities, and he realizes he's going to be here for one of the feasts, and after a few days, he's going to make the long walk back home, but they get to stay there. They get to live there. Their job is at the temple every single day the place that he has to travel hundreds of miles to come to for just a few days at a time. And he envies them, again, in a sanctified way, their access to God, the blessings that they have. Not, not to put down what they were about or those kind of things, but it just shows his, his, the longing of his heart to live close to God and, and to uh, have that kind of intimacy with God. He said, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. So he starts to think about, he lives somewhere. We don't know where he lives. But he's got to make a pilgrimage from where he lives to Jerusalem. So there's a journey that's involved. And the journey's long enough that they run out of water at a particular place in the valley of Baca every single time they make the journey, at least at that time of the year, which would make sense for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so he's thinking about this journey that he's going to be making, this pilgrimage that his heart is set on to go to this temple that represents the presence of God. And of course, the psalm is a beautiful uh, type and picture of the pilgrimage that we're on as Christians that doesn't end in a temple somewhere, but it ends in the very glory of heaven itself. And he said, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a stream, a spring, and the rain also covers it with pools. So somehow in the course of this journey, they reach a place where they run out of water. And in this valley of Baca, we don't know, we don't know what valley he's referring to. It's an ancient name for somewhere in Israel or on the way to Israel. They run out of water, and they begin to have to dig down in order to find a source of water, a spring somewhere, and in order to replenish their water supplies. And it is so hard to dig 
and so difficult to find this spring that it produces weeping in their lives. Very, very hard. But ultimately, they find the water and they fill, uh, uh, refill their water supplies. And then he says, as a result of digging out that spring, they make that, that valley of Baca a spring, and the rain also covers it with pools. In other words, he's saying that we dig out this pool of water, and it's tremendous work to us, tremendous difficulty for us, but we do it, and when we leave that source of water, we realize that it will be a source of blessing to all of the pilgrims who are going to follow us on the way to uh, Jerusalem. They will have a source of water that they didn't have to dig for. And the big picture of our pilgrimage, making our way from this room tonight to the very throne room of God one day, is that we do have our valley, valleys of Baca too. Those trials, those difficulties that we face in life, that when we face them and we deal with them, they're so difficult and they're so hard that they produce weeping within our life. Very hard trials. I, I don't know if you... I think one of the most powerful things to watch or to ever witness in life is to watch a man cry. A woman too, but especially a man in this culture. When life reduces him down in terms of difficulty, that he begins to weep over the difficulty. Now, that's a hard place for a person to be in in life. And yet, all of it is worth it for the character that we develop and the things that we learn in that hard place that allows our lives to then become a spring to others who will follow us into that same trial or that same difficulty. Nobody's going to get away from trials as a Christian. It's where we, learn, it's where we develop almost all of our character, and it is godly character, and it's where we learn most deeply almost all of our spiritual lessons. And so it, it occurs. I think about my own life. I think about men that I look at, and the idea is kind of a generational thing a little bit. None of us, know, none of us has any idea who is watching our lives. You say, oh, nobody's watching me. I'm just dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ. I'm a nobody, nobody. If people know you're a Christian, you're being watched. And not everyone watches you cynically. People watch you with hope. And so our lives are watched and our lives are an encouragement to people when we go through those kind of valleys in a way that we will maybe never understand in this life. And our lives communicate to people coming behind us in that same difficulty that you can make it through this valley and that God can work it together for good and that there's life on the other side of this valley and there's character that can't be found any other way in the Christian life that is developed in that valley. And it is that realization. Sometimes we will do for others what we would never do for ourselves. 
And when we realize, yes, I'll go through this valley, and I will endure that if it means that somebody, God can direct somebody's attention to me and give them hope when they hit that valley one day in their life because they'll know I was there also and made it through and more than made it through, was blessed as a result of the experience. I think all of us, I hope all of us have such people in our lives. I think in my own life, one of them's already gone to be with the Lord, Bill McDonald. He was one of those men. Chuck Smith is one of those men in my life. Gail Irwin is one of those men in my life. K.P. O'Hannon is one of those men in my life. But it's not just men like that. I could move into this room and mention names, but it would embarrass people. And if people knew it would put a strain on the relationship or get people thinking in their heads and they wouldn't just be doing what they're doing now, they'd be thinking what I'm thinking when I, and they don't even know that I'm watching and being encouraged. But if they did, they'd crash and burn or something. So it's just best to leave it alone. But it's going on. And it's going on related to all of our lives. And it's that passing through the valley of Baca in that way, and God is doing it on our pilgrimage as well. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion, and so he talks about experiencing God's strength to get through the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And we have the confidence tonight in our walk with the Lord that God will give us the strength as we need it to one day enter into the glory of heaven. No temptation has overtaken us except it's common to man. God will, with the temptation, will either give a way of escape or he'll give us the grace to properly handle and navigate the temptation. Always he will do that. The fact that we will one day stand in heaven, that is a given. He will give the strength to, to make sure that that happens. But we do hit places in our lives where we can get pulled so far, one nostril out of the water kind of stuff, we say, Lord, I'm, you've got me stretched about as far as I can be stretched today, and if I have one more day like this, I don't know if I'm going to make it. But the Lord never gives us today the grace that he's going to give us for tomorrow. He gives us grace for today. And we get through today, and it's a testimony of the fact he'll give us grace again for what we're going to face tomorrow as well. And so sometimes we think we start, we start to look at how we're going to handle something on the basis of some kind of a reserve. When God's got all of the reserve, he doesn't give it to us sometimes except a day at a time. But I want us to be very encouraged tonight as it relates to verse 7, that no matter how hard a pilgrimage gets, each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon, uh, and look upon the face of your anointed. And so he's, he's asking for the Lord for uh, traveling protection. <laughs> Lord, be our shield. Usually we say, Lord, just protect us on this journey and help us not to get hit by some maniac. Uh, in those days, you had to be worried about, you know, somebody... Uh, 
running you over and stealing everything you had. And so, this prayer for uh, God to be a shield and praising Him that He is. And then he says in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And the idea is anywhere else. A thousand. One day, he's he's saying, one day at the temple, in the courtyard, in the middle of your people, in the worship of you, I wouldn't trade that for a thousand days anywhere else in the world. Wow. That's a man who loves God. Could you say that about yourself? I don't say it to condemn, I just say it. He said, I will take one day of worshiping you in your place, your way, than a thousand days anywhere else in the world. You pick your favorite place in the whole wide world. Is it Paris? Is it Buenos Aires? Is it a Greek island? Is it the Cotswolds in England? Is it Santa Barbara or Carmel, a little closer? You take what is your, you say, this is the dream. If I could only live there. One time we were on a cruise. What's the use of going on one if you don't let everyone know? (laughs) So now you know, I've been on a cruise. So I was on a cruise, you know, and then they give all these things where they put these things in your room where you can then uh, read about all the cruises that they do to make you dissatisfied with the one that you're on. <laughs> oh, there was a Mediterranean cruise was there. A Baltic Sea cruise was there. Here I am on this lousy... I'm not going to say because I don't want to... I don't want to ruin your cruise. (laughs) I remember reading in one of these things that had a cruise that went for a full year around the world. A full year. I wouldn't want to do it. I can't be gone that long. (laughs) They'd replace me for sure in a year around here. But I I just, I'm not made for a whole year away. And I'm, I, I love the travel, and I love the exotic and all of that, but I, I got I to gotta have a grilled cheese sandwich and a bowl of spaghetti every once in a while. I can't be eating all those snails and everything every night that they serve for dinner at those places, all that rich food. It's very complicated being me. It's hard. <laughs> you think about that cruise for all that time. He's talking about three times longer than that. He's talking about almost three years. My favorite place in the whole world for three years, no comparison to one day of being in the midst of God's people, worshiping Him in His place, in His way. I think all of us understand it, at least on some level, all of us understand it. Have you ever been someplace in the world that is unbelievably beautiful, but there is no 
witness of God. There is nothing there of God. It's a black hole. It's negative particles or something. It just wants to pull spirituality out of you because there's nothing there of it itself. I can't wait to get out of those places. And it can be the most beautiful place in the whole wide world. And if God isn't there, get me out of here on the first flight. That's why it's nice to travel with Christians. And I think it's one of the reasons that God sent them out in twos in the book of Acts because you bring kingdom with you. Now you go into a place like that and there's the two of you. There's an outpost for the kingdom and you need one another in that kind of a place. But this is no hyperbole. This is how he feels. One day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. And I'll tell you, I believe it. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of, the, of, the, of wickedness. Now, doorkeeper is in those days, that was a servant. That was one of the lowest places you could take. He said, I would rather have the lowest position of service in the house of God or related to something that has to do with the kingdom of God than uh, to live I'd just rather be there, just serving there, rather than dwell and live in the tents of wickedness. No matter how much money, how much wealth, how much food, how much what, how much sin, how much whatever it might be, he said, it's no hard decision for me at all. I'd rather be a servant doing the simplest and the smallest thing associated with the kingdom of God than to have anything to do with even the greatest thing that the wicked have day after day after day. And I think all of us recognize and have the Spirit's witness in our heart to the truth of that as well. What a privilege it is to serve the Lord. It doesn't matter what it's, whether it's some big public thing or something small and quiet or whatever. All that matters is what's He called us to do, and we're being faithful to it. That's what gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And so we, we, we work and we are in the world and we have these different jobs and these different things and God has placed us in these places so that we'll be a light for Him and, and work as unto Him in that place. And it's a way that God supplies for the needs of our family. And I spent years doing it that way ever before I became a pastor and was thankful for it every single day. But the real meaning and the purpose of our life, we do all of that and we're happy for it. But the real meaning and the purpose of our life is where the kingdom of God is being represented and is being expanded because of God's call upon our lives and His gifting in our life. That's where the meaning and the purpose is found in life, nowhere else. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He uphold from those who walk uprightly. 
So that's, a, that's another beautiful verse and a favorite of God's people. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So here I am. Here you are walking through life or walking uprightly. Our lives are characterized by obedience to the Lord and all. And so we ask the Lord for something. It sure looks like it'd be good for me. I mean, what would be the problem with me knowing what the winning lottery numbers are going to be? Could it do any harm? So we ask, and I say that facetiously, whatever it might be in our life, we ask God for something that we consider to be a good thing. If He doesn't give it to us, we know it's not good for me. It may be lawful for me, but it may not be good for me. It may be something that if I had my way and God gave it to me in my life, completely lawful, completely legitimate, nothing wrong with it at all, and it become a massive distraction to me in my walk with the Lord and in my service to the Lord, then it's not a good thing for me, and He won't give it to me. But that's the confidence that we have as Christians, as we're walking obediently with the Lord, and we ask Him for things, and He doesn't give those things to us, at least not immediately, then we can realize that is not good for me right now. As much as I may not understand it, that is not good for me, otherwise God would give it to me. There's no good thing that He will withhold from us, from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in You. And so this final expression of just saying, Lord, thank You so much for the privilege of knowing You and being able to trust You in this life. That psalmist, I'll tell you, that's a man who knew God and who loved God, and that psalm provokes something very, very good in us as his people. Let's stand together and we'll pray.